1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Get Lit with Becky podcast, the podcast dedicated to your development and helping you light all the way up. My name is Becky and I am business mentor, empowerment coach and founder of Get Lit Inc., the home to your business, career and personal development. And I am on a mission to help as many of you as I can shine brighter and access your fullest potential. It is time to shush that inner critic of yours, break through your limiting beliefs and self defeating behaviors, build up your self worth, get out of your own way and fearlessly step into your power so that you can build a life that you love and a mindset that will take you places. This podcast is for the dreamer, the believer, the go-getter and the inspired. Let's get lit. I actually want to just start this episode um, firstly with a very, very huge thank you to you um, because your teachings from The Big Leap, quite literally, changed my life I say to everyone when they ask me which book if you could name any book I say that book and I mean that from the bottom of my heart it changed my life it changed the way I show up for myself the way I run my business it gave me strength and confidence to even do what I'm doing right now and I truly also believe that actually is what guided me to be even able to write my book which comes out this week as well so I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart as I I mean that I really 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 mean that it changed my life. And I think extensively on that has changed much of my community's life as well on the clients that I work with, because it's the book I make them all read the moment they start working with me. So thank you. Well,
2: thank you. That's a great honor. (laughs) That's one of the best things you could ever say to an author is that their book changed your life. So um, I'm I'm thrilled actually that it helped you get more into your genius zone and do what you do right now.
1: It really did. And that's why I'm so excited to do this episode, because I obviously really want to unpack so much from your recent book, The Genius Zone, because um, it's incredible read as well. I, I literally divulged it in like two days, um, but also unpack some of the concepts and the theories from the, the first, like, you know, the big leap, just because it was so fundamental for me as well. And it really, really did completely, finding my, jo- my zone of genius and actually something I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but what I thought was my zone of genius has now turned, I think, into something else and it has just changed the way that my life is. So I guess firstly, uh, there were two fundamental things for me in the in the big leap, which was uncovering the upper limit problem, completely changed my whole mindset and then also of course our zones of competency and, the, you know, the zone of genius. So I guess firstly, I would love for you to just introduce the concept of your zone of genius and those four zones um, and you know what they really mean
2: yes well the big leap was about two big things and the new book the genius zone is about two big things too the two big things the uh, big leap was about was you mentioned the upper limit problem yeah that's something that I think everybody needs to know about is how we go about sabotaging ourselves when things start to go better. Mm -hmm. And the big leap shows you that the the upper limit problems are based on fears that you encounter along the way. And if you can address those fears directly, Mm -hmm. then you can get into your genius zone. And just to let you know what I mean by genius zone, it's that part of you where you're doing what you most love to do and what also makes your biggest contribution to the world around you. So I think genius at its best, I've been studying this now for almost 50 years, and I've found that genius at its very best is when you're in the sweet spot of doing what you love to do and that also makes a big contribution to other people. And it doesn't matter the size of the contribution. I mean, you could be a genius making a soup for eight people, Mm -hmm. or you could be a genius writing a symphony for a thousand people. It really doesn't matter the scope. What it matters is that you awaken that spark in yourself that's all about opening up to more and more of your individual organic genius every day. And the second thing um, you mentioned was uh, the genius zone and what those other zones are. This is really important, too. Once I figured this out, I'll tell you, it made my life so much more (laughs) easy and successful. Uh, If you look through your day, you'll find that very likely you spend a lot of your time in one of three zones, particularly, and then there's a zone that I want to advocate that you spend your time in that you can, once you start trimming down the amount of time you spend in these first three zones. The first zone I want to beg, plead, and cajole you to get out of as <laughs> quickly as possible is your zone of incompetence, where yeah. you're doing stuff you're not any good at. Like I mentioned in the book, you know, I'm not any good at mechanical stuff. Mm-hmm. But until I figured that out, You can't count the number of hours I spent trying to beat my brains out, trying to figure out how to do something mechanical that somebody else could have done a thousand times quicker. Uh, The second zone is your zone of competence, where you're doing things that you're good at, but somebody else can do them just as well. Those are two zones that as quickly as possible, delegate or get your way out of those so you're not spending any of your day doing stuff you're not any good at or stuff you're just good at but somebody else could do just as well. Where you want to spend a good bit of your time if you're a successful person is in your zone of excellence. I'll tell you what that is in a moment, but I I also want to say that where you really want to spend your time is in your genius zone. And the reason oftentimes gifted people like yourselves don't spend time in their genius zone is because they get trapped in their excellence yeah. zone. And that's a big problem because your excellent zone is things you're good at and you're better at it than most people. And so because of that, people want you to do more and more and more of that. And for a while, it feels good because it's great to be making plenty of money. It's great to be increasing your visibility in the world or providing more quality things for your family or whatever your highest values are. That's a beautiful thing. The trap is, though, that I have had hundreds, if not thousands of people in this very office over the years who have told me some version of the following story. They'll say, OK, I'm 40 years old or I'm 38 or I'm 45. It's oftentimes around midlife that this kind of this awareness hits people. And they come in and they say, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm at the top of my profession. I'm making my 600 grand a year. My wife loves it. My kids love flying first class. And, you know, one, two, three, all the way down the zone. And yet every person tells me there's something inside me I'm not getting to do or I feel trapped because I want to be doing something else that I can't really define. And so what that is, is that's genius knocking on your door. And if you're in the zone of excellence, it's going to come knocking louder and louder the more you are around midlife, and particularly later after, you know, if it's knocking on your door at 50 (laughs) or 60, it's banging with a uh, a, a blunt object on your door. But the, the key thing is, is to get yourself as soon as possible, established in this new zone i call the genius zone where you're in the sweet spot of what you love to do and what also makes your biggest contribution and the new book shows you how to live there i I always say the big leap like the goldfish on the cover shows you how to leap into your genius zone and the new book shows you how to live there 28 hours
1: a day and there's that's what I loved about the new book as well because it really does if you've read the big leap it kind of answers all the questions that you have from the back of that and there's so many reasons why what you're saying I know will resonate with my audience so much because a lot of a lot of them are young entrepreneurs they're you know starting their businesses and there were so many reasons why it was so profound for me a because I realized I was getting so frustrated with all this crappy stuff in my business that I hated doing and I wasn't good at doing so I got rid of that I delegated really quickly Um, and then I found myself in my zone of excellency for a long time and that's why I love what you just said there about you know moving from excellent to genius and how you figure that out and I actually found myself getting really frustrated with trying to figure out what the genius part was and I've had a few clients say that to me too being like "You, you you know you sent me this book I can't figure out what my excellency is and what my genius is like what is the difference how can someone really begin to explore finding what that feels like to be in their genius over what it feels like to be in their excellency
2: Beautiful question. One thing I ask my clients to do is to think back through their lives to the early side of their lives, you know, maybe before you even went to school or kindergarten and ask yourself, hmm, what did I most love to do back then? And because oftentimes it has the seeds or the key to your genius now. Uh, Like I tell the story in, um, I can't remember if it's in The Big Leap or, or the new book, one or the other, uh, about what happened when I got my tricycle when I was was uh, four or five years old. Yeah, yeah, was that in The Big Leap? Yes, well, this very strange thing happened that became a family story. And the family story is when I got my tricycle, my grandmother let me ride it in her big living room because it was raining that day. And that's where my birthday party was held. And so uh, otherwise, it would have been strictly forbidden. My grandmother was a rather formal lady, and she wouldn't have done this. But she took pity on me, I begged her to let me ride it around the living room. And the first thing I did, I'm told, was I got a big cardboard box, and I put it over in the corner. And I had my granddad write the word problems on it and nobody could figure out what I was doing because I lived in a little town of 10,000 people in the swamplands of central Florida, where there was no psychologist or therapist or social worker or life coach or anything like that. There was three doctors and about a dozen preachers. That was, that was the sum total of the self-help information. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I asked my granddad to put problems on this little sign. And I remember he wrote it in red with some, it's my grandmother's lipstick or something. <laughs> and But I got into the box and that was my office. And the idea was that people were supposed to come to me and talk to me about their problems. And I was very specific. I said that I didn't deal with medical problems because you could take those to a regular doctor. And I was clear to people that I dealt with something else. Well, I never had any clients, obviously, because no member of my family is going to consult a therapist wearing <laughs> short pants and riding to work on a tricycle. So I uh, I didn't get any business, um, but they weren't the pr- sort of people that would go looking yeah. for that kind of advice anyway. Uh, But that was a key for me. And I remember the pleasures of sitting in my box. And even though I didn't get any business, I had this imaginary thing going where people would tell me their problems, and I would come up with a magical solution to them. I'd kind of like whoosh. And I didn't know exactly what I'd do, but it would be this whoosh. And so now, when my work goes well, I've been basically doing that now for my adult life for the past uh, 50 years. I saw my first client in 1968 as an official mm-hmm. sit-down therapy client. So uh, your math is probably better than mine, but that's about 50 years ago, I think. Years, and, yeah. Oh, a little over 50 years yeah. ago, 53 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, to me, yeah. although I've, I've put in a lot of hours, in a way, it's been play for me because I've been doing what I most love to do. And even though the circumstances have changed, you know, now, you know, when I started it, I was working with juvenile delinquents in a facility. <laughs> and then I was working with um, people who had gone through a grief experience and in a uh, in a study of, uh, of grief. And then I was working at Stanford, working with Silicon Valley executives when I was working on my doctorate there. And now, you know, I work with all sorts of people in, in, in different professions. But the key thing is the whole thing has been about revealing people's genius to them. And along the way, having a commitment to revealing more of my own genius. And so, you know, I started out getting to do it in a little tiny cramped office in an institution and ended up, my wife and I, getting to do it a number of times in front of 10 million people on Oprah. But in a way, the message is still the same that we have this genius inside us. And if we can invite it forth, and learn how to be with it in our daily lives, it can really change your life into a set of magical experiences.
1: Mm. I mean, I literally I'm like smiling ear to hear because I love listening to it. And I guess as someone who's who really resonates with everything you're saying? It just is amazing. And one thing I was actually going to ask you is: Does it? Do you think it can evolve, or do you think it is? You have the genius, and it can uh, come out in different platforms. Like for me, for example, I really thought, uh, you know, I, I figured out that my my excellency was the marketing, was the 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 PR background of the the business coaching that I do. But I really felt like that my genius was the coaching in any form, whether it's one to one with a client on a podcast. But until I wrote my book, and then everything changed, and now nothing feels like it feels when I write. And so it's like I've almost had a bit. And I actually kind of really dawned on me when I read um, the Genius Zone. Kind of dawned on me that I was like, has this shifted, or is this just a new platform for me? Because I have been agitated ever since writing the book and it finishing, and now we're like literally launched this week. Ever since doing that, I've missed writing, and I've been agitated because I haven't been writing. So. Do you think that's a shift or do you think that that's, I hadn't actually explored that part yet?
2: Well, I think that your genius has a number of different facets to it. Interesting. Like if you hold up a diamond to the light, it glitters in different directions, but there's this one central diamond in the middle of it. Like, uh, and I think where you are, if you've tasted that joy of writing, that's a real, real good sign that you're in your genius zone. Yeah. So my, my suggestion is write more and do more of whatever causes that feeling in you. Yeah. Because, you know, I always say, well, you know, I, I've, I've written almost 50 books now. What I think, think my new book is something like 49 or something like that. I've basically written one a year for the last 50 yeah. years. And people frequently ask me, do I ever get tired of it? And I, no, No. I get up, uh, I wake up organically around four in the morning, I sleep from 10 to four. And so by five o'clock, I'm usually writing, Mm -hmm. I meditate and have something to eat beforehand, but I'm usually from five to seven or 730 writing, just as I've always done because of that feeling that you're talking about. Because when writing is going well, and I think when any aspect of your genius is going well, it's like. Sex It's euphoric. It's yeah. it has that euphoria built into it. Mm. And the nice thing is, you can do it uh, while warmly dressed, unlike yeah. sex or something like that. So you can <laughs> yeah. sit there and you And you cozy. I write in. Uh, I write in a very cozy robe most of the time. My wife calls it my robe of invincibility. Oh, it's I this love big, that thick, plush <laughs> robe. And I uh,
1: wrap myself in it and uh, perch on my chair back here oh I need to get myself a robe no it's amazing it's really interesting to know and so one thing we have touched on and I think this like you mentioned it in the big leap the upper limit problem and I think in the book you kind of uh, in the genius zone you deepen it slightly with our addiction to sabotage and suffering and that again is something that I really resonate with how firstly what is the upper limit problem and how does that, how can we identify when it's at play? For someone that hasn't read The Big Leap yet, obviously, I encourage you to go and read it. And then they probably all have. Um, so, you know, that sabotage, how can we identify that it's at play?
2: Yes. Well, the upper limit problem basically is a learned pattern of sabotaging yourself when things start going better. And what it's based on usually is early programming, often preschool programming but certainly later on in in elementary school and up into high school, programming that you get from siblings as well as parents and society. And often what happens, probably if you're watching or listening to this uh, podcast, you're very keenly interested in personal growth. Mm -hmm. That makes you different from a lot of the population. A good bit of the population is pretty impervious to things that are likely to make them better uh a lot of people, unfortunately, in a way, I wish it were not this way, but uh, a lot of people, when they get the urge or get some inspiration, uh, instead of going to the library and buying a self-help book, they go down to the local mm-hmm. and uh, come back later <laughs> uh, yeah. feeling mellower, but not in the mood. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what what we need to do is recognize that If you're in this crowd called people who want to improve themselves, people who like to grow, people who like to see change in the world and themselves, you're going to need to study your upper limit problem. Because I work with gifted people all over the world, movie stars and Grammy winners and people like that in various cultures, and I haven't found one of those people yet who didn't have some upper limit problem. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a problem for people who are up and coming. Uh, I get calls all the time from uh, people who are very wealthy or very successful, and who have hit some kind of upper limit in their lives. So what I, the first point I, w- I wanna make is, it's absolutely natural and normal. There's nothing wrong with you about hitting upper limits. So I want you to open your heart to compassion with yourself for this whole inquiry called what are my upper limits? Underneath the upper limit problem are only a handful of fears, Mm -hmm. but they drive the upper limit problem. And I want you, as I describe them, to listen to which ones of these might apply to you. Almost nobody has all of them, but almost everybody has one or two of them. So see if you can find what this is for you the first fear that often very gifted people have that creates their upper limit is they have a fear of outshining <laughs> other people. Like, I'll just be blunt about it. I grew up in a in a little tiny town where I was really always the smartest kid in the room up until I got to elementary school. And then there were other kids from lots of other elementary schools, and I was no longer the Smartest kid in the room. Uh, there were, I think, four others <laughs> yeah. about, out of 180. <laughs> but, but we're talking about the, the swamp lands of Central Florida, <laughs> where, where there was very little middle class. There was the people that owned the swamp lands, and then the people that worked in picking oranges and stuff like that. So um, the the what happens is if you're if you have the fear of outshining, when you start to shine you start to feel sorry for other people who aren't able or willing to shine as much as you can. And so it. some people respond to that by holding themselves back. So take a breath with that and just ask yourself, hmm, do I have any of that out? Any Do I shrink back a little bit for fear other people won't be able to shine as much? So I can compare it to like when I was a kid in first, second grade, I was always the kid that was sticking up his hand and knew the answer and kind of waving at the, why don't you call on me, you know? And I remember having a quiet little conversation with the teacher one time when I was in the third grade, where she basically took me aside and said, look, you're not the only one here. All these other people got to have a chance to, you know, (laughs) and even if you know the answer, cool it a little bit. And so, uh, you know, I I cut down by about 90% my yeah. hand raising. So, but, you know, it, it's a problem that um, talented and gifted kids have growing problem, up, Is oftentimes yeah. we're coached to sh- uh, sh- turn to down our the lights. volume a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for
1: sure. It's a big problem.
2: Yeah. A second problem that a lot of people, successful people have is that they hold themselves back for fear that if they increase their visibility in the world and increase the amount of energy, fame, and all that running through them, they have a fear that it will be more of a burden on -hmm. them. Oftentimes, in fact, I had somebody in my um, other, uh, we used to live in Colorado, in my Colorado office once, who had had many hit records and he was in the middle of making a record and he was very depressed. And he said the following thing to me, and this is a classic example of the burden fear. He said, so what if I make another album and make another $10 million? So what, you know, what good is it at this stage of the game? And, and he was knocking on my door too, because genius was knocking on his door. He What happens a lot with very successful people is suddenly there's a big structure created around them. And, you know, like one of my actor clients says, if I'm not acting, 90 people starve, (laughs) you know, because of my team and publicists and lawyers and Mm -hmm. managers and (laughs) the production company that he owns and all of these kinds of things that are kind of symptomatic of success, but can drain energy away from you spending time in what your true genius is. So that fear of burden caused a lot of people to shrink back. The third fear is the fear that if I change, I'm going to change in ways that make me disloyal to people in my past or make people in my past think I'm Different, different or weird yeah. or not doing it right, you know. They have critical feelings toward me, and I've run into that with members of my redneck family when I go back to funerals mm-hmm. and everything to Central Florida. You know, I've had, uh, uh, you know, a cousin yeah. say, "So you write books, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what we <laughs> use books for down here, don't you? You know? Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so." Uh, <laughs> You don't always get treated as a celebrity, even if you are one by members of your family. And I've had other people that uh, you know make records or movies and things like that catch a lot of guff from uh, sometimes when they go back home. So it's a fear of being disloyal holds people back. Probably the fourth fear though, that the one that has a grip on more people than anything else is the fear that I'm somehow fundamentally flawed. In some way that I've done something wrong or I'm the wrong gender, I'm the wrong something where I don't feel worthy of maximum success. Mm. I had an anxiety attack client come over the day before. I mean, I had a client with an anxiety attack Mm. come over. The day before he was supposed to get his palm prints in the sidewalk down in wow. Hollywood, there with all the stars and everything, and he was having a panic attack because the more visible now I'm eternal, and what if everybody finds out I'm not who I really am? You know, so um, like my beloved salty granddad was wont to say, the more, the higher a monkey goes up the tree the more of his bottom you can see. He didn't use that particular word, but you get the drift. Uh, And so uh, a lot of people are afraid of going to that next level, taking their life to the next level, because they fear the exposure of that flaw in themselves, or they don't want to confront or admit that. Uh, I have a very dear friend that went through many, many uh, years of alcohol and drug Uh, enthusiasm uh, before she was able to kick that and then became a major international recording star. Mm. The whole time she was in the addict phase, she was exactly the same genius as came forth later, but it was the other stuff that's in the way, and the stuff that was in the way was all based on that fear of being fundamentally flawed and she would try to drink that away and finally one magic day she stepped up in front of a group of people and said my name is sally and i'm an alcoholic and you know there was stuff she'd been like there's an old saying in 12-step groups that you don't get to confront what you've been drinking for until you stop drinking. And then you begin to realize, oh, Mm -hmm. here's why I became an alcoholic was to avoid feeling whatever. And so um, I've had actually, I had a heroin addict tell me that, and he had already kicked the drug, but he was kind of jokingly giving me some guff about having helped him kick the drug because he was saying, um, Dr. Hendricks, you really ruined my life. You really made my life complicated. And, you know, he was sort of t- joking, but he sort of wasn't joking. And I said, well, what do you mean there, George? And he said, well, when I was a heroin addict, my life was completely well organized. I would wake up, I would feel that gnawing sensation, And then that would motivate me to go beg some money, steal some money, get a loan, visit my mother's purse or whatever I could do to get some of the drug. Then I would take the drug and I would have a great afternoon or a great evening. And then I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up and do it all over again the next day. He said, You know, in a way, although I felt miserable (laughs) much of the time, and I had to steal and all that kind of stuff, it it made my life very simple. Yeah. That was news to me. You know, Mm -hmm. that was about as different from any report I'd ever heard. But anyway, I I, I think it's worth his point because in a way, living, unless you figured out some of the rules it's pretty tough stuff because we keep repeating the same patterns over and over again. (laughs) You know, like I I play golf on, uh, well, several days of the week usually, but uh, this week I'm playing him tomorrow uh, with a good friend of mine who, um, speaking of 12 steps, he was an alcoholic for uh, about 20 years. And now he's got about the equivalent amount of time of sobriety. But he was telling me that before he Uh, kicked the alcohol people told him on many many occasions that he was an alcoholic and he needed to get some help but every time he would get defensive and come back with some version of I can handle it get lost well the magic didn't happen until the day he stood up there and said you know my name's Larry I'm an alcoholic and and to call it like it is the ownership of that is the key thing because anybody can tell you, hey, you need to take responsibility for your life. But until the moment you go, oh, yeah. I do. I take responsibility for my life and I take responsibility for not having a drink today. <sighs> you know, that puts everything in the right place. But until then, you're just kind of casting around from one program to the other, from one pattern to the other. To the other.
1: I mean, it's so packed there with the fears. I resonate with, I think, all of those fears. And when I was doing a lot of the work on myself, I realized, you know, it was a fear of being seen, the fear of Other people's insecurities or, you know, other people's, what they haven't done yet, you, you know, they project them on you when you start to shine. I really resonate with everything you said. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts from, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Just search for Paranormal Activity with Yvette Fielding. With those fears, obviously in the sec like, so you talk about the sabotage in The Big League, but in The Genius Zone, you talk a lot more about our unproductive obsessions and our, you know, addictions to suffering. And I assume fear is one of those things. How much of this do you think this is, I guess what I've kind of called it before and is like our distraction from being our greatest self? Like, do you think that these are real fears or do you think they're all things we just let ourselves get obsessed over to stop us from finding our zone of genius and really embodying that way of life?
2: Yes, well, they're all real fears in the sense that they are things you can feel in your body. Now, what put them there varies. You know, sometimes you can make yourself just as scared in your belly by recycling certain thoughts through your mind as if there was the real thing happening. Uh, Actually, one of the very first clients I ever worked with was a a young African American uh, boy from, he was about 15 or 16 years old, um, from the heart of the inner city in Boston who had a fear of stakes. And Interestingly enough, he'd never actually encountered a snake. Uh, He lived in a concrete world where he didn't go out into the countryside. And so he had seen pictures of them in books, and that was enough (laughs) to do it for him. And uh, why he ended ended up volunteering for this particular study that I was working with, a phobia study at the time. And so uh, you don't have to actually encounter the real thing in order to be very, very afraid of it. In fact, you can be inoculated by fear of somebody else at an early age if you're around somebody who happens to be uh, very scared of something. Mm. You know, like I worked with a a young woman one time who had a a life-threatening allergy to shellfish, and it turned out she had completely learned that from her mother. Her mother had this Allergy to shellfish. And so she had kind of picked it up by osmosis. And once she worked through it, she could eat all the clams she wanted. But uh, so sometimes, if these things have been conditioned or programmed in, they have to first you have to kind of become aware of them and then begin to work with them. That's why I say, like with the upper limit problem, often the only thing you really need to do is acknowledge that fear underneath and realize, oh, I'm operating out of that fear that I've got a fundamental flaw. Let me just ah, take a breath into that and move on beyond it. Because here we say uh, at our institute, one of the sayings is fear is excitement without the breath. If you remember to breathe... ah, you Love
1: know, and that. have some zest for life, your fear melts into excitement. Yeah. Did you think that awareness, because even for me, it was actually really literally last week, I had felt so good for such a long time. I So when I first learned about the upper limit problem, you obviously say, you know, might might be good, feeling good for a couple of days and then it something clicks. And I've got myself up to now, like a good six months of feeling great. And then I forgot to turn my blinkers on and literally the week into leading into my book publication, like week, a, a, a typical repeating pattern played its little head with me and I kind of indulged in it a little bit let myself get upset and then I had this profound awareness I was like hang on a minute I'm, I'm upper limiting myself here and I just laughed and in that awareness I was like completely set free from it do you th- is awareness just purely the key or how else can someone move through those fears and you know those that suffering that we're so used to whether it's like negative self-talk self-criticism you talk about all of that in in the genius zone do you think awareness Awareness is literally just all that we need. Well, I think awareness is a key first step. There is a yeah. second step
2: that's crucial. But I think that awareness, uh, <laughs> you were mentioning writing a book. Um, yeah. I have a lot of friends who write books. And one of them was just about to publish a new book that he'd been working on for months and all the publicity yeah. was in place and everything. And he calls me a couple of days before and he said, um, I had a fender bender, picked a fight with my wife. And um, what was the third one? Uh, oh, ate something that disagreed with me. You think <laughs> I might be having an upper limit problem.
1: <laughs> Literally how my last few weeks have been. And I just, Oh, so funny.
2: Yeah. Cause they often come in waves like yeah. that. Uh, you fall off your bike, uh, uh, get the hiccups and, <laughs> you know, lose your keys the same day. Yeah. So um, awareness is, is very key. But a second thing, when you're aware of it, you're really ripe then to create a better pattern. Mm-hmm. And so a key next step is to make a commitment, an actual heartfelt commitment to a new path. Yeah. So for example, if you catch yourself in the middle of having an upper limit problem the day you're supposed to give a speech, let's say. <laughs> uh, let's say you get uh, hired to do uh, a 10,000 pound keynote speech about your new book that you've mm-hmm. published. And so on that day, suddenly you wake up and you've got a sore throat <laughs> and then you turn on the TV and you, and it says, we're in the middle of cold and flu season. Everybody's desperate. You need to take these pills or you're going to die. And then you turn to your spouse and your spouse says, uh, oh man, you could probably use a day in bed, staying home from work. So pretty soon you've got this gigantic full-blown illness that's all based on a fear of fully expressing yourself yeah. and a fear of allowing yourself to receive the equivalent amount of energy that you have put into your new book. You know, most of us yeah. are a lot better at giving and putting forth energy than we are at receiving yeah. a back. Wash of adulation and praise and financial prosperity. Mm. I think that this next um, phase of life for many of us is going to be dedicated to developing the superpower of receptivity. Yeah, you talk uh, about, I about think that. that amazing. Uh, receptivity is really a beautiful thing that most of us are a little bit squeaky rusty mm-hmm. at. Because if you like try this sometimes, just as an experiment. Think about something that you really appreciate about somebody, and think of a 10-second way you could say it. Um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of an example right now. Okay, let me just give you a 10-second appreciation here. I really, <laughs> appreciate, I, get awkward. <laughs> yes, I really appreciate the modulation of your voice. It's very pleasant to listen to, so I can Thank see you. why you'd be good at the podcasting business. Thank you. Okay, so go it's up to hard. A person and just give them a 10-second compliment and watch how they respond to it because they will often respond to it almost as you did <laughs> uh, where they'll try to talk you out of it right away. And um, I tried this. I, I think I told a story in the book of my uh, beloved uh, late mother-in-law, Polly, where uh, she made lots of great food, but she could never receive a compliment on it. So one Thanksgiving where she'd made this delicious pumpkin pie, I tried an experiment on her in my own devilish psychologist way. I started trying every way I could to give her a compliment on the pumpkin pie just to map out all the ways she could deflect it. So I said, Polly, the, the pie was absolutely delicious today. And, uh, and she said, do you think so? You know, because I don't know if I got enough um spice uh cinnamon or whatever the thing is in in pumpkin pie and i and I, i persisted so i and i said no that was the part that i found absolutely exemplary was the the amount of spicing in it and then she came back again you know like well you should have seen the way Mama used to make it, you know, like devaluing her own because it wasn't mama quality. <laughs> well, none of us makes mama quality food. You know? Yeah. That's and, totally uh, true. So uh, it's, it's too harsh a standard to apply. So um, the, the point I'm making, though, is that most of us have a very big resistance to actually acknowledging the positive in ourselves. So try and experiment. If you can find a person when you compliment them that goes, wow. You know, that's absolutely true. Let me just take 10 or 20 seconds to revel in that. Ah, (laughs) Ah, That's what I want to see in the world. I want to see people that will actually feel things, you know, not just will deflect things and say, oh, I couldn't possibly, you know. Uh, I think uh, developing the superpower of receiving is going to be very big over the next few years for those of you that
1: are in earshot of our podcast amazing no I really really resonate with that it's hot it's super hard because also it stems back down to that fear of shining you don't want to seem to be arrogant I think we really have you know I see it so much in my generation of women there's this fear of shining bright at the the thought that someone might think you're too self-indulgent or too arrogant or love yourself too much and there's such a conversation around aren't we all here trying to help people love themselves more shine a little bit brighter yet we feel so uncomfortable doing that. Um, and it's still so easy to say, oh God, she loves herself. Or, oh God, she, like, oh, you actually think you're... It's like in the film Mean Girls, someone says she's really pretty. And she goes, oh, so you think you are really pretty? When she says, thank you. Like as women, we're really taught to to not, you know, take that compliment. So I think that's, that's something I really enjoyed reading in the book. Something else you mentioned just prior to that around making a commitment to yourself. After reading The Big Leap, I wrote a commitment to myself about my... Um, my deservingness and worthiness and comfortableness around shining that was kind of what really came out for me and stepping into my shine but something that you said in the book uh, the genius zone really landed with me when you talked about recommitting over and over again I think it's really easy to make a commitment to yourself um, to make change and then think your work is done (laughs) and not realize that you've got to keep showing up with that commitment and when I had that sabotaging moment I had to like kind of recommit to myself um how important is that and you know for overcoming there's a lot of this book is around overcoming your negative thinking and the obstacles that are holding you back from finding your genius
2: yes well in in the book i talk a lot about an absolute genius at recommitment and we have to get just as genius about it and the, mm. the device i'm talking about is the automatic pilot on an airplane. Whereas if you're in London, let's say, and you want to go to New York, the pilots get up there and they program the automatic pilot so that it puts them on to beam to New York. And then they can kind of just sit there and do whatever pilots do when they're just sitting there and (laughs) watching the instruments. Because (laughs) the automatic pilot is doing this genius thing. It's going like this. Okay, we're drifting a little to the right. Take it back to the left. Okay, we're drifting too far to the left. Take it back to the right. Okay, we're right on the button. Okay, we're drifting a little to the right. Kick it back to the left. So it does that, I mean, literally, probably millions of times between London and New York. And the thing to know about it is it's a genius at recommitting. Each time it says, okay, we've drifted off the beam. Nudge it back the other direction. Mm -hmm. So it makes a recommitment. And so it gets all the way from London to New York by being wrong most of the time. And that's a good metaphor to keep in mind because if you get good at recommitting, getting back on the horse, getting back on the beam, that's a great skill to have because I'll just tell you, in any big project, whether it's in in, in the book, I talk about how I lost a whole bunch of weight Mm -hmm. way back a long time ago. Let's say you've got a big project like losing 100 pounds or you've got a big project like getting yourself out of debt or you've got a big project you're creating in your business, a big launch, that kind of thing. That's going to take many, many, many recommitments because it's in the nature of business and entrepreneurial life to be constantly drifting off into various distractions and You know, you get stuck in limiting patterns and things like that. That is business. You know, it's not business is not going to start once you get that stuff done. That is the nature of the um, enterprise. And so to get really good at recommitting after you've fallen off
1: the horse is just as important as getting yourself committed in the first place. So powerful. It's so powerful because I think so many of us are looking for the quick out. We're looking for the like, my job is done. I've reached my destination. You know, my worker is done. I've, I'm personally grown. I don't need to do anymore. And you forget that it's constant. And you know, like you even said before, it's almost like life was simpler when you were just switched off a little bit. I think there is this element of the moment you start doing the work on yourself, it almost becomes more complicated than it was before. For in a way, but in a much better way, because you you kind of get the highs. Is how different does this differ to you? Talk about the genius move, the, the genius moment, and the genius move. How, how what's the difference there um, between recommitment? The genius moment that I talk about in the new book, I said that it's it's about
2: two big things. Well, one thing is how to spot the genius moments that occur all during the day when you can immediately pop into your genius. Mm-hmm. The second thing is how to make what I call the genius move, which is the act of spotting that genius moment and making a move that opens up your connection with your genius. Uh, You know, somebody, I'll tell you what that, uh, what those two are in a moment, but I just had a picture pop into my mind. Uh, Somebody on Instagram the other day uh, put out a picture of themselves in a bikini on the beach reading the book. And uh, I got a kick out of it. But in a way, I I want people to enjoy this on the beach. But I also want you to sit down with it in a quiet place Mm -hmm. for an hour and work on the book. That's, I think, one of the reasons the audio book is so popular since the book came out. It's only been out a month or so. and uh, But the audio book has taken off like crazy. And I think it's because... People want to work on it. They want to sit down by themselves and work on it. And Mm -hmm. I really recommend that you take an hour to work through how to deal, how to spot the genius moment and how to make the genius move. Mm -hmm. But let me give you the two-minute quickie version of it. Anytime you are trying to control something that you don't have the power to control, you get a feeling of being stuck. Yeah in a relationship even for example if you get stuck it's always because you're trying to control something that you don't have any power to control just take that and write it on your mirror yeah <laughs> that's what I gets hear that people are upset yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when you find yourself feeling stuck or out of sorts go in and ask yourself what am i trying to control that i don't actually have any power to control mm. And when you spot that thing and let go of that, whatever it is, that opens you directly up to your genius. Let me tell you what some of those typical things are that people are trying to control that get themselves massively stuck. They put up with things too long. That's one thing. And uh, for example, I had a, a, a dear friend tell me that she got anxious around the telephone on the weekends because her her former mother-in-law was, uh, her. she was a widow, my friend was a widow, but her former mother-in-law would still call her years after her husband died, thereafter, thereafter the mother-in-law's son died in a car wreck, and she'd have a few drinks on Friday or Saturday night and then call up my friend and tell her what a bad wife she was and blame her for things that happened years ago and everything. And then she would call the next day and apologize. That's a bad pattern to get into because it's no favor to the other person. And so oftentimes we get ourselves stuck by delaying too long the process of putting our foot down or saying no. I had my client, I mean, my friend, just practice one week of if her mother-in-law called drunk and started saying anything abusive, she just hung up the phone. Mm -hmm. It only had to happen once, interestingly enough. The mother-in-law called the next day, effusively (laughs) apologizing, and said she hadn't realized until that moment how obnoxious and abusive she had been, and she would never do it again, and has not done it again to my knowledge since. So oftentimes it takes one intervention of really saying no to stop a pattern. The second thing is oftentimes we get uh, get into these patterns, not by a failure of saying no, but of an inability to say enough yes to ourselves, the, the, the saying enough yes to our genius. You know, we need to, on a daily basis, put passionate attention to expressing more and more of our genius every day, doing more of what you most love to do, doing more of what makes your biggest contribution. We say even doing 10 minutes more a day will change your life because we have actual data on that. That if people devote an extra 10 minutes a day to their genius in the beginning, next month they're doing 20 minutes and next mm-hmm. year they're doing two and a half hours. So genius is addictive if you can get rid of the other addictions yeah. <laughs> that are pulling you, pulling yeah. you back in the other direction.
1: totally understand that it feels it does it does feel addictive and I guess just one thing that I want to touch on and this is probably for an entire episode on its own but I don't think enough is said about it and it is something that when I tapped into it and really explored that side of me life changed and that so much of the the new book is around living in your true creativity and, and bringing more creativity into your life and I think it's definitely something that I never even realised how creative I was at all through so much of the early start of me starting my business. Um, I feel alive when I'm doing something creative. I literally, it feels like a heroin fix for me. Like not that I even know what that feels like, but it just feels like what I imagine that to feel like. Um, I guess we, we, we don't have the time to fully explore it, but what is the difference? You talk about ordinary creativity and true creativity. What is the difference of that? And how important is it to find, you know, true creativity in our lives? Well, very important. Here's why. Ordinary creativity is when you're
2: using your creativity to serve other people. When you're using it uh, you know, to to make a living or something mm-hmm. like that. Like one of my, uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, uh, in my spare time, I write mystery novels and I've written nine of them that have been published so far. One of my heroes in the world of fiction writing, detective fiction is Elmore Leonard. Mm-hmm. And he started out working in an ad agency, writing car ads. That was his job day after day mm-hmm. after day. And finally he just got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore. And then he, decided to follow his own genius. And I think he got paid something like, or made something like $1,200 from his first book. So it wasn't an immediate get rich thing. And then, you know, what I'm got taken to the movies, made into a movie, and wow. then he was off and running. But oftentimes, in the beginning, your, your genius doesn't immediately bring uh, riches. But what it does bring is a type of satisfaction inside that you really can't get any other way. And so that's why I think if there's one thing people could take away from this conversation, it would be to make a heartfelt commitment to bringing forth more and more of your genius every day, Mm. to let that be the, the living commitment
1: that energizes you on a daily basis. Yeah. I hear that because it changed my life when I started to explore that. For, like my life now two years on from reading your book, it was two, yeah, about two years ago, Has is, it couldn't look any more different. It really couldn't. So honestly, thank you so much. There is so much in this episode that I'm sure our listeners will absolutely learn so much from. And hopefully we can do another one soon because I think there's so much we could unpack. There's so much I want to ask you, but I'm obviously very conscious of your time. But thank you. It was truly amazing really 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 inspiring and there's so much to learn there well thank you it's a great pleasure talking to you you have been listening to the get lit with becky rabin podcast the place to be to build a life that you love and a mindset that will take you places thank you so much for tuning in today if you liked this episode please don't forget to like share and review us so that we can keep spreading this light and help More women light up together. Every time you share on your socials or with a friend, you help another person find us and help us spread that light. Further. If you are a regular around here, don't forget to click subscribe or follow, add us to your libraries so that you can be notified of all of our latest episodes. And don't forget to also check out all that we have to offer at www.getlitinc.co.uk, that is www.getlitinc.co.uk to help you drop self-doubt and truly step into your greatness. From our group coaching programs, workshops, courses, memberships, and our very own Get Lit community coaches, as well as tons of free resources aimed to help you excel in your personal lives, entrepreneurial journeys, and in your careers, we have absolutely everything for you. And if you are looking for a coach that is right for you, then don't forget to head to our expert directory that is getlitinc.co.uk forward slash expert hyphen directory and you can see our incredible directory of approved coaches ready and raring to support you on your growth journey you know what time it is it is time to step into your power raise your vibration and get lit
0: hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter